0: I think that's the first time I've ever been introduced as a grandfather. (laughs) But, you know, I take that as a real compliment. I'm very thankful that that actually works now. Before we turn to the 84th Psalm, I do want to thank all of you for your gracious hospitality to me and to my wife. We've had a great time. It's great to know you all. One of the things we commented upon earlier is... Whenever we've been to other Reformed churches, it's remarkable how similar the people are to our own congregation and friends at Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim. You could transplant the congregations to all the different churches, and there's the same guy, the same husband and wife, there's the same teenagers, the same children. It's just amazing how uh, there's such a uh, cohesion among the Reformed faith and Reformed family. So uh, we've noticed that, and we, I was just thinking about the prayer time tonight. For years, we've done the same sort of uh, open prayer time. And the same sorts of requests come up that are you know, heart rending and, and yet thankful, and so I'm, I'm very gracious and glad to be here. And, and thank you all for that uh, grandfatherly introduction. <laughs> if you would stand, please, while we read the 84th Psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow for a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are all the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Please be seated. As you probably know, in many places the Bible speaks of the Christian life as a pilgrimage. Paul describes the Christian life in at least two places as enduring this present evil age as we make our way to the glorious inheritance which is ours in the age to come. When our Lord Jesus calls and instructs his disciples, he uses images drawn from Israel's exodus from Egypt, in which Jesus promises that he will lead us from the bondage, and guilt, of, and power of sin into the promised land which is our Sabbath rest in the presence of God. The Bible also tells us that we are citizens of two kingdoms, the civil kingdom and Christ's kingdom. We live and labor in the one, but we sure long for the other. As God's people, we long, we desire God's presence and favor. This is our hope, the realization of our heavenly citizenship. And that gives meaning and purpose to our lives as we make our way towards our final goal and destination. The problem is not that we haven't found what we're looking for. You may remember the U2 song Bono's famous uh, lyrics. We have found what we're looking for. The problem is we won't fully receive what we found until we come to the end of our pilgrimage. And we're not there yet. That's why the biblical writers can depict the struggles Of the Christian life as a journey of sorts as we make our way to that place we so eagerly seek. Psalm 84 is the third book of the Psalter, it's in that third book, and describes a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem to worship Yahweh in his temple. And although the pilgrim motif takes a number of different forms in the scriptures, one way it's depicted is in terms of desiring fellowship with the living God. In the Old Testament, we find this longing expressed by a number of Israel's prophets. During that period of redemptive history, from the time of Israel's release from captivity in Egypt, to those 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness of the Sinai, people of God could hardly wait to enter the promised land of Canaan. For them, a new Eden of sorts. During the era of Joshua and the Judges, and then throughout the period of the United Kingdom of Saul and David and Solomon, God's people desire to worship God in his temple, which they see as the visible sign of Yahweh's presence in the midst of his people. But once the kingdom is divided, and Israel's fortunes become bleak, God's people find themselves seeking deliverance from widespread apostasy throughout Israel, And from the wickedness of their own religious leaders. The people of Israel long for deliverance from their enemies. They long for that time when Israel will once again live in peace and safety and prosperity. It's not accidental that Messianic prophecy flourishes during this time as God's people begin to increasingly look ahead to the coming of their Messiah. Long promised. In the New Testament, this same longing for God's presence and blessing takes a, strikly, a strikingly different form. The coming of Jesus Christ, the biblical focus, shifts away from the letter of the law written on two stone tablets to the Holy Spirit. The focus shifts away from a building where God resides, the temple, to the church in which His blessed Spirit dwells. The focus shifts from fruitful vineyards fields, orchards, material blessing toward heavenly blessing. It shifts away from dwelling in the land in peace and safety in Canaan to union with Jesus Christ through faith, because he is the true Israel. As Paul puts it in Galatians 4, 4 to 6, now that the fullness of time has come, Jesus steps out of the types and shadows of the Old Testament, now fulfilling all of God's promises. With the dawn of the Messianic Age, it is clear that Jesus is the true Israel, and we are His people. And that's why, in Matthew twelve six, Jesus says of Himself, "I tell you, something greater than the temple is here." With the coming of Jesus Christ, the change in focus from anticipation to fulfillment. God draws near to us, His people, in Jesus Christ. God's righteousness and salvation come to. Faithful men and women. Through faith, we take hold of God's promise that all those blessings that He has given are now ours presently in Jesus Christ. Yet we also know those blessings will not be fully realized until our Lord returns to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new. And until that great day arrives, we continue our pilgrimage to the promised land. And that's why the Christian life and all of its struggles can be described as a journey. As those who are trusting in Christ are pilgrims, making our way to that good land which God has promised, and where at long last we will enter our Sabbath rest. And so in light of this prominent biblical theme, a number of Reformed theologians have spoken of the Christian life in terms of a theology of pilgrims, a theologica viatorum. We are pilgrims on the way. Seeking the presence and blessing of God is the theme of both our texts. We're going to look at Psalm 84 and then Philippians chapter 3. The author of the 84th Psalm is one of the sons of Korah. He vividly describes how he longs to be in God's temple because that's where God is present. As he contemplates these things, as he begins to think about this, it brings him great joy and it serves within him a powerful desire to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, as you may know, the sons of Korah have a very interesting history. Originally, the Korahites were expert warriors, often assigned the task of guarding the campsite where God's people resided as they moved throughout the wilderness of the Sinai Desert. Later on, the Korahites assumed a more specialized duty, guarding the threshold of the tent of meeting. And by the time of Solomon's temple, the sons of Korah, much like the sons of Asaph, had become a guild of musicians who were devoted to the craft of composing sacred song. In fact, 12 psalms are attributed to the various sons of Korah. Now, the unknown author of the 84 psalm writes like a homesick man. He's eager to return to that place for which his heart desires. He can't wait to get to that place where Yahweh is present. Three times in the psalm, the author will speak of the blessedness of being near the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. In fact, he pronounces a blessing upon his readers who are seeking the same thing. And the author's entire focus in this psalm is upon being in that place where he will enjoy the presence of the living God. The 84th psalm is divided into three stanzas. In the first stanza, verses 1 through 4, the author expresses his longing in terms of a journey to a distant home, as he describes the emotion of a man who's far away from, his, from that place where his true affections are directed. In verse 1 of that psalm, the psalmist describes the temple of God as lovely, or more literally as dear or beloved. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! Now, the language used here, surprisingly, is typical of love poetry, and it recalls to mind prominent themes throughout the other psalms of the Sons of Korah, namely Psalm 42, verse 4, where we find this. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And so the unknown author of this psalm obviously delights in fulfilling his role as a musician in Solomon's temple, which is the place where God dwells. And his mind is full of the memories of the grand processions of the people as they make their way to the temple. It's a time of great joy, a a time of thanksgiving. And he can't wait to see that grand possession go up to the house of the Lord one more time. Now, contrast this with the greater light of the New Testament. The temple where God dwells is composed of living stones, his redeemed people who are now described as the mystical body of Jesus Christ, which is his church. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The psalmist delights in God's temple, for that's where God is present with his people. The New Testament equivalent of the psalmist's desire to be in the temple is the delight we feel when we assemble together with our brothers and sisters to worship the triune God. Why? Because individually and collectively, we're Christ's temple. We're the dwelling place of the blessed Holy Spirit. But the very thought of the dwelling place of the Lord stirs the hearts of the psalmist. And he goes on in verse 2 to write, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh will sing for joy to the living God. But make no mistake about it, it's not the psalmist's attachment to a building, the stone and the mortar that stirs his soul. The living God is the object of his longing. The author seeks the temple courts because God is present there. In fact, his providential care that God has for his creatures, evident in, in the temple, stirs his heart all the more. He says, even the sparrows find a home, and a swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And so by nesting in the eaves of the temple, the lowly sparrow enjoys the blessings of God's presence, the, the very thing the psalmist desires. But a great king who knows not Yahweh, and yet who lives in a luxurious palace, can't begin to understand the blessedness of the lowly sparrow that's built its nest in the eaves of the temple. And so moving on to verse 4, we come to the first of three beatitudes we find in the psalm. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And so, in contrast to the poor wandering exile who desires to be home but who can't, the psalmist pronounces a blessing upon those who, like the sparrow, reside where the living God resides and who are continually near the presence of the Lord God. They're able to praise God in His temple whenever they wish. And that's the very thing this exile voice speaking in this psalm longs to do but can't. And so in the second stanza of this psalm, verses 5 to 8, the author then speaks of this longing to be there in terms of a journey. The psalmist is a man making his pilgrimage to his favorite place on earth. We all have vacation spots that we love. We can't wait to get there. We plan days in advance. The morning when you get in your car and head at your driveway to, to get there, that's what the psalmist feels. He wants to be in jerusalem He wants to be near the temple because that's where yahweh is the second beatitude or blessing opens the second stanza of verse five blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to zion well whether the psalmist is speaking as one who actually must make the pilgrimage to jerusalem or whether he's speaking of his own longing for the presence of god in terms of a journey really isn't clear In fact, the pilgrimage spoken of here is based on a word that has a double meaning. It may either refer to a race highway that's used by the pilgrim to make his way to Jerusalem, or it may refer to the race path used by those in the processional going up to the temple. And it may even refer to music raised up to God in worship. But the key in all of this is the journey to God's temple, whether literal or figurative follows a well-known and frequently trodden path. And for many of us, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is itself such a highway to the living God, because God's book of praise shows us the way to that which we desire the most, the blessing and favor of our God. As one makes this journey home, The landmarks they pass on the way remind them that the distance from home is decreasing with every step they take. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. The valley of Baca is named for a shrub that thrives in arid places, and it's often a landmark that indicates there's a spring nearby. Even a barren place, this valley of Baca, can be a place of refreshment. Because God may choose to send autumn rains, which bring the barren desert back to life. The Hebrew word for pool has exactly the same consonants as the word for blessing. And the idea is that the soul longs for God because the presence of God turns barren places into green valleys. And so just as the rain renews creation, so to being in the presence of Yahweh, that renews the psalmist's soul. The nearer the pilgrim gets to home, the stronger he feels the pull. Instead of tiring and giving up, the eager pilgrim actually gathers strength at the very thought that he's starting to get close to his destination. When you're coming home for vacation, you're going 70, and as you think about it, pretty soon you're going 80. That's the way the psalmist is thinking here. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. The closer he gets, the faster his pace. The pilgrim eagerly desires to be in Zion at the foot of God's holy mountain. And the very thought of drawing near to God's temple leads him to cry out with words of anticipation. Verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Well, the pilgrim's prayer will be heard And it will be answered. He knows that God is faithful to his covenant promises. He knows that God delights in both the prayers and the praises of his people. So in the third stanza, verses 9 to 12, that tells us the pilgrim has finally reached his destination. His desire to enter into the presence of God is now fulfilled. He will hear yet again the praises offered to Yahweh by his people. The psalmist will join that happy throng when the Lord bestows his favor on those who seek his presence. Now verse 9 is an interesting passage. It's a sort of parenthesis. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. So before the psalmist continues on about the glories of the temple, his train of thought's interrupted, and he makes a brief entreaty of sorts for the king, who's both the shield and the anointed one of Israel. And so as a gesture of devotion to the king, the psalmist asks that the same measure of his own pleasure found in being in God's temple would indeed be upon God's anointed, the king, as well. In verse 10, the psalmist returns to his original train of thought and makes what really is an amazing declaration. A day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This, brothers and sisters, is the Old Testament equivalent of Paul's assertion in Philippians 3 when he writes, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The one who knows the presence of God would much rather assume the lowliest post in God's service, a doorkeeper, than feel at home in the company of the wicked. Now, that little phrase, tent of wickedness, is a figure of speech. It's connected to the wealth and the status of those merchants who traveled throughout Palestine. Better to be a doorkeeper in God's house, the lowliest post, than be an equal of wealthy pagans in their big tents who know not God's favor and know nothing of his blessing. Even God's doorkeepers receive a reward that far transcends anything the pagans can offer. As the psalmist says in verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is both the sun, the source of life and joy, as well as a shield for his people, a source of protection and power, and deliverance. Once in God's presence, God bestows both favor and honor on his people. The Old Testament equivalent of grace and glory in the New. And here the word favor has the sense of God smiling on his people as he takes delight in the delight that his people express for him. While in the New Testament, honor and glory point to the resurrection on the final day and the shame and stain of our sin is forever removed. The point is that God bestows his blessing upon all his people as they seek him, just as he will bestow the greater blessings found in Jesus Christ whenever we assemble to hear God's word and bask in those glorious promises that our sins are forgiven and that we are clothed and covered with the perfect and faultless righteousness of Jesus Christ and that we will dwell forever in the presence of the Lord. No more journeys, no more road trips. In fact, says the psalmist, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. A text which is echoed by Paul in Romans 8.32, when he writes, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In fact, these words from the psalmist here foreshadow the gospel. At least that's how Paul saw it. And so as we see in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God withholds no good thing from those who trust in him. And although he did not know the name of Jesus, nevertheless the psalmist knows this fact to be true. God will give every blessing, everything to those who love him and trust him. But the psalmist also says that these things come only to those whose walk is blameless. That is, those whose walk is upright or who walk uprightly. Well, what's the psalmist mean by this language of walking in an upright manner? Is he saying that these blessings come only to those without sin? Absolutely. From the perspective of the psalmist, this upright walk is characteristic of an Old Testament saint who in faith looks to God's promise to provide for the forgiveness of sin and to find a righteousness that can withstand his holy presence. His whole heart believes what God has said, and he longs to see the promise become a reality. And so as he puts it in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. But from the perspective of the New Testament, The one whose walk is blameless, it's not you, it's not me, it is Jesus Christ. What the psalmist could not yet see is that God bestows his honor and favor, his grace and glory upon us by reckoning our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us, so that we are seen as though we had no sin and as though we had kept God's commandments perfectly every moment of our lives. We are blameless we walk uprightly because Jesus Christ is without sin. And through faith, we are united to Jesus and all of his uprightness. Jesus now becomes the object of our favor and our desire, just as the psalmist desires to arrive at the temple where he knows that Yahweh meets with his people. It's the knowledge that the Lord blesses the man and woman who trusts in him that stirs the psalmist's heart And that's why he makes the long journey to the temple. And the closer he gets, the more his strength is renewed. And that's why he longs to be in that temple. And that's why he envies the lowly sparrow. And why the very thought of being in the presence of God stirs his heart to such great joy. He knows that it is better to be a doorman in God's dwelling and receive God's favor than to have status and riches in the palace of the pagans. Now, in the New Testament, that for which the author of Psalm eighty-four so desperately long, takes a different direction. Jesus has come to Israel, and He has shown that He is the true temple. And through faith in Jesus Christ, God bestows His grace and glory upon His people. And so we, the faithful, must no longer seek God's presence in a particular building. Why? Because we're God's living temple when we assemble together. No longer do we need to make a journey to Jerusalem on a raised path or to some holy place. For in Jesus Christ, the true temple of God, God is always present with us. And in him, God bestows his grace and his glory. For the psalmist, it's better to hold the lowest rank in God's kingdom than to have status among the pagans. He longs to be where God is found, but for Paul, the situation is different. His longing for God's favor and presence drives him not to think of a journey that he has to make to be near to God, but rather how God has already made a journey to be near to us in Jesus Christ. While the psalmist sees this in terms of it being better to be in the doorkeeper in the temple... For Paul, the thought of Christ's righteousness, the ultimate blessing of God's favor and honor, that moves him to renounce all of his confidence in his own accomplishments. So listen to Paul's words in Philippians 3, 1-11, where the apostle writes these words. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. That better to be a doorkeeper thing? And indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For I have suffered for him the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. You all know the Greek word there. Nor that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here's the contrast. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. The psalmist longs to be in the temple of God, and the very thought of being in the presence of the Lord moves him to declare, I'd rather be a doorkeeper there than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Paul, on the other hand, seeks to gain Christ and his righteousness so as to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And that very thought moves Paul to say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Both men, the psalmist and Paul desire a similar thing, but Paul saw what the psalmist couldn't, that this desire to be in the presence of the Lord is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is present with us through his word and through his sacraments every time we assemble beloved let the very thought of christ's perfect and faultless righteousness satisfy our need for god's blessing and favor and like the psalmist and the apostle let us delight in god's presence in the person of jesus christ as he draws near to us as the psalmist was excited by the very thought of being in the presence of the Lord, he, he picks up his pace, he makes his way through the valley of Baca toward the object of his delight. And blessed too are each one of us as we make our way each Lord's Day to assemble as the temple of the living God to hear yet again that wonderful word of God's favor and pardon. Oh, for a day in his courts, the person of our savior jesus we have everything the psalmist so eagerly desired and yet we still remain pilgrims as we make our journey to christ church every lord's day because we are god's living temple may our strength be renewed and may we find the favor of honor of god we know what the psalmist knew how lovely is your dwelling place O lord of hosts and like paul We know that the same blessed Lord whose presence the psalmist desired above all else, he is with us. Beloved God has smiled upon us in Jesus Christ. He has given his own son for us. Why? For the complete and total remission of all our sins. And so with our strength renewed, our hearts filled with gratitude, we continue on our journey, knowing that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen, and let us pray. Our gracious God, we have heard wonderful things from both the psalmist and the apostle. We're mindful, Lord, that we no longer make a journey, but you have made the journey in your incarnate Son to come down to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life, to suffer and die for us, to fill us with the blessed Holy Spirit, to unite us to our Savior, that we may know the glorious resurrection from the dead on the last day. And as we make our journey, O Lord, give us strength and faith through the word and through the sacrament. Lord, we are weak, we are prone to stumble, we are prone to wander, but you are a good shepherd. Your staff will guide us, and your word will teach us and instruct us, And remind us yet again that it's not the journey we make, but the journey you make, that you have made once and for all. And so, Father, we give you, as we can, our thanksgiving and praise. And we thank you, Lord, for a Savior who loves us and gave himself for us and does indeed bless us with all the blessings that are in him. We ask this in Christ's blessed and glorious name. Amen.